In the following sermon, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, even though he wrongly announces this at the beginning of the sermon as chapter 5, verses 26 and 27. It is, in fact, chapter 4. The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, in the fifth chapter, verses 26 and 27. Verses 26 and 27 in the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. In these words, the Apostle continues the series of particular injunctions that he is giving to these Ephesian Christians in order to illustrate and to make quite plain to them what exactly is meant by putting off the old men and what is meant by putting on the new men. The Apostle, as we've seen, realizes that it's not uh, sufficient just to give a general exhortation like that. He, uh, as a wise teacher, was sufficiently familiar with the indolence of men as the result of sin and our tendency to explain things away and to rationalize our sins, that he took no risks at all, but illustrates in particular and in detail what exactly this putting off of the old and this putting on of the new really does mean. Now, As he deals with the details, he nevertheless does put them every time in terms of this vital doctrine which he's already been laying down. And in particular, he is concerned with the doctrine of the church, the unity of the church, the church as the body of Christ, and our being members together and in particular in and of the same body. So that what he's really saying in effect is this, that we must put off that old life of sin and put on this new life of holiness. Because sin is not only something that is wrong in and of itself and indicative of the old life. Sin always breaks fellowship. And that is his immediate practical concern at this particular point. Sin breaks fellowship. Holiness, on the other hand, always breaks promotes fellowship. So that as he deals with these particular examples and illustrations, he keeps that in his mind the whole time. Now, we saw that last time when we were dealing with this injunction where he says, put away lying. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. And now as we come to this second illustration, or the second injunction, we find again that he is dealing with the same fundamental principles. Here is something else which breaks the fellowship, and which not only breaks the fellowship amongst Christians, but again violates the whole fundamental basis and foundation of the Christian life. So he comes and takes up this question of anger. 
Again, you notice he takes up a, a very common trouble, a very common source of sin and of disruption and breaking of fellowship in the life of the Christian church. I've no doubt that he put these things in the order in which he puts them because they do seem to me to represent the order of frequency. Well, now let's observe how he deals with this question of anger. Because uh, you must have noticed already that he does so in a most interesting way. And as is invariably the case with him, he doesn't merely deal with this problem from the standpoint of morality. He doesn't deal with it in the way in which pagan philosophy deals with it. He deals with it in his own specifically Christian way. And that is, as we've seen, the only way in which we as Christians should face every single problem that confronts us in the Christian life. Everything we do should be different. Our way of tackling these problems is totally unlike that of the world. Very well then, what exactly does he say? What is the meaning of this statement, be ye angry and sin not? Here, I think it's important for us to realize what it doesn't mean. There are those who would suggest that it just means this, that if you should be angry at any time, see to it that you don't sin, a kind of a permissive statement, that if you should be angry, well, don't sin as you're angry. It doesn't mean that. There are others who think that it means this, that if you cannot get rid of anger altogether, well then, suppress it, keep it down, hold it down as much as you can. And that again, I suggest, is completely and entirely wrong. There is never any such teaching at all in the scripture. That's what the world does. The world suppresses. It just uh, keeps it down, and the result is that ever and again, when they're taken unawares, the trapdoor suddenly flies open and the whole thing reappears as bad as it ever was before. Now, there is no suppression taught in the New Testament. That isn't the Christian way of dealing with problems. So it doesn't mean if you cannot get rid of anger, at any rate, control it and suppress it as much as you can. Well, what does it mean? Well, clearly and obviously, this is a positive command. It's a positive injunction. It's not some concession that is made to a weakness. He's calling us to something. He says that we are to be angry. It's our duty to be angry in certain respects. But that we must never be angry in a sinful manner. Or, as he adds, we must never be angry in such a way as to give an opportunity to the devil to come in. Now then, here is the interesting thing which the apostle tells us at this point. We are meant to be angry. Be ye angry. But never in a way, I say, that becomes sinful, and never in a way that opens the door of opportunity to the devil. Now, how are these things to be reconciled? How do we work it out? Well, we can do nothing better, it seems to me, than just take the apostle's statements as he puts them. The first is, be ye angry. In other words, we start with our first proposition by saying that there is a right kind of anger. And I wanted to show how important this is. Anger, in and of itself, 
is not sinful. Anger, after all, is a capacity which is innate in every one of us and clearly put into us by God. You can really call it one of the natural instincts. The capacity for anger against that which is evil and against that which is wrong is something which is essentially right and good. And it is because the pagan moralities so frequently forget that, that those who follow them find themselves in a false position. The pagan idea always is, is that you are to crucify your instincts, doesn't matter what they are. That's false asceticism always, it crucifies its natural instincts. Now the Bible never teaches to crucify a natural instinct. What we are to do with them is to control them, not to get rid of them altogether. Now the Stoics believed in getting rid of them, they tried to kill them. Uh, the Epicureans just regarded them with disdain. Both those are wrong, and neither of them, of course, is Christian. The instincts are to be governed, and they're to be controlled, and they are to be rightly used. And I am arguing that this anger is something which is placed in us by God. It is a capacity within men which uh, results in his being roused by the sight of certain things. And the result is that it's a very valuable and a very priceless and precious thing. And uh, it is because this is ignored and forgotten that much of what is happening in the world today is really happening. But let me demonstrate my point. To prove that anger is not sinful, that anger indeed is something which is very right in and of itself, I simply have to quote you a statement which is made in the Gospel according to St. Mark in the third chapter and the fifth verse about our Lord himself. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he looked round about them, these Pharisees who were opposing him, these supposed religious people who were hindering him, he looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Or take a similar statement uh, which you find in Luke 13 and in the 15th verse. Then the Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite! Here again was one of these lawyers, Pharisees, doctors of the law, uh, trying to trap him and to trip him. And our Lord turned upon him and said, Thou hypocrite! He spoke with anger. You get it in the second chapter of John's Gospel in the 15th verse, that incident in the temple. When we read, uh, when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep, and the oxen, and poured out the, change, the changer's money, and overthrew the tables. Now there was our Lord cleansing the temple in a righteous anger and indignation, making this scourge of small cords and literally driving them out and cleansing the temple. Now there you see it, of course, in our Lord and Savior himself. But, of course, no one is at all familiar with the Bible can have failed to observe a term which is used constantly in the Old Testament and the New about God himself. 
the wrath of God. Take the familiar example, the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans, there it is in the very first chapter. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein, he says, is a righteousness from God revealed from faith to faith, even as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, why is he so pleased about this? Why is he so anxious to preach it and to proclaim it in Rome and everywhere else? He gives the answer in the 18th verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God. And so, John the Baptist and our Lord preached and exhorted people to flee from the wrath to come. The great day of his wrath is come, you read in the book of Revelation, about the end of, of time and history in the world and the judgment that will be ushered in by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we realize that this is something that we must not dismiss. And again the Apostle Paul in writing to the Corinthians in the second chapter makes this thing quite explicit and shows how at a given point we should feel anger and a righteous indignation with ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 7.11 I read this. He's talking about godly sorrow. He says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, he says this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. But you notice the word indignation, anger. They were angry with themselves and the cause of the trouble, with the men who had sinned and with their own failure to realize what it was and to react to it as they should have done. But now, says Paul, you've dealt with it. And you felt this indignation, anger. Very well, what does this mean? Well, it means this. That we should always be angry against and about sin and evil. Be ye angry, says the apostle. In a sense, he is just putting in New Testament language what Psalm 97.10 puts like this. You that love the Lord... Hate evil. You see, the two things go together. If you really love the Lord, you must hate evil. Evil and sin are definitely to be hated. Now, it's not at all surprising that the apostles should give this exhortation to these Ephesians. They needed it. And they needed it for the reason that he's already given us in verse 19 of this chapter. You remember how in describing the state of life lived by the Gentiles, he says this, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts, who, being past feeling, have given themselves up unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Their past feeling, which you remember we saw meant this, that their consciences had become calloused and hardened, their sensibilities had become dull and blunted, 
They couldn't react to anything. They were past feeling. They were so steeped in sin that nothing any longer could move them or shock them. They were past feeling. No, they had become morally indifferent. They had become supine. That is always a characteristic of godlessness and irreligion. That is one of the terrible things about paganism. That men and women become so steeped in sin that they're not aware of the fact that they're sinning. They can't react at all. They, they never feel any sense of indignation or of horror. They never become angry at anything at all. They're past feeling. Now these pagan Gentiles had all become like that. If you want to know exactly what it means, read again for yourselves the second half of that first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, where he'll tell you all about it. They'd forgotten God and they were worshipping birds and four-footed beasts and insects. They were worshipping one another and they'd not only become immoral, they'd almost lost a sense of morality. They were guilty of all the most foul and hideous perversions the world has ever known. The whole world had become a moral sink of iniquity. Now then, says Paul, you've got to get right away from that. You've got to learn to be angry at that sort of thing. You must be roused. You mustn't be complacent and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. But now that's how they had been. He says you mustn't be like that any longer. This failure to react with indignation and anger against sin and evil is always a sign, I say, of moral degradation and of godlessness and irreligion. There's a very terrible way of describing it to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 8 and verse 12. Oh, there he gives a list of the things that were characterizing the lives of the people. I've picked out the one phrase, but let me give you the whole statement because it's such a great one. Listen to this. He says, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. What a terrible state to get into. You're not quite hopeless while you can still blush. That means there's still something there at any rate that makes you feel a certain sense of indignation and of shame and of anger. But these people have become so sunk in sin that the apostle says neither could they blush. Didn't matter what they did nor anybody else did. Nothing could move them and nothing could disturb them at all. Now that is something which is always wrong. And what we need if we're in that condition is this exhortation of the apostle. Be angry. Rouse yourselves, he says. Don't allow yourself to be governed by that old mentality. Put off that old man. Put on the new man. You must learn, he says, to be really angry against iniquity and sin. God made us in such a way that that should be our natural reaction. It was the natural reaction of the Lord himself. It is God's reaction to sin. Now, I don't think I need take much time this morning in pointing out how badly this very word is needed in the world today. Are we not rapidly again approaching a state of affairs in which this exhortation is more urgently needed than perhaps anything else? Isn't one of the greatest tragedies in the world at this hour the failure to feel moral indignation and wrath because of things that are happening? Isn't there a fatal tendency to be complacent and to explain everything away and to say, oh, well, 
Even though we hear people on the wireless and other places deliberately teaching, evil be thou my good, still there seems to be no protest. We seem to have lost the capacity to be roused morally with a sense, I say, of indignation. This is to me the major problem in the world today. As it has been for a number of years, there has been a slow, steady decline in morals, not only in behavior, but in outlook and in reaction. So that everything I say tends to be, uh, well, we just shrug our shoulders at it and uh, allow it to pass away. Uh, I believe this was true of the attitude of the world to a man like Hitler before the war. I think that it would have been unthinkable 50 years before. There would have been protests, it would have been stopped. But not in the moral decadence of the 30s. No, no, we couldn't be bothered. We wanted to go on enjoying ourselves and having our good time. And we somehow hoped, therefore, that it wouldn't affect us and that all would be well. And so the thing was allowed to start and to continue. But it's not only something that is evident in our attitude towards international affairs, the rise of dictators, the toleration of things in nations which should never be tolerated because of what they really are. But it seems to me that it's creeping into the whole of life. I don't want to refer to such an unsavory matter, but one cannot but be somewhat appalled at the reaction to a thing like the Wolfenden Report. This idea that you can regard certain perversions as natural and that they're to be explained somehow, uh, that medically it can be explained. In other words, the whole category of sin is rapidly disappearing. There isn't such a thing as sin. Our man's made like that. He was born like that. He's got, just got that tendency in him, and it's very strong in him and not so strong in another. So we explain everything away. There is no protest. There is no moral indignation. And it is into such a situation as that that the word of the apostle, the word of God comes. Be angry. Learn to react against these things. Feel a sense of indignation. There are certain things that should rouse us and should be denounced. An absence of a sense of shame and of anger and of righteous indignation is always the hallmark of deep degradation and sinfulness and a loss of the sense of God. Our Lord was angry when he observed manifestations of sin. And what measures your and my approximation to him is that we manifest a similar reaction when confronted by similar things. It's our duty to be angry at certain points and with respect to certain matters. But that brings me to my second point, which is, of course, this thing that the apostle adds, be ye angry. But don't sin. Don't be angry in a sinful manner. We've been looking at the right kind of anger. We must now look at the wrong kind of anger. You see, the whole time we are walking on this kind of knife edge, and that is Christianity. You can swing from one extreme to the other, and we've got to be very careful. We've already seen other examples of this. The apostle has already told us to speak the truth in love. And some people put the whole emphasis on truth, and others put it all on love. The first people have no love, the second people have no truth, and they're both wrong. We speak the truth in love, truth and love. Here again, be angry, but don't sin. 
There's a wrong way of being angry. And what is this? If I've been speaking to some people in particular in the first point, I'm speaking to others probably at this point. What must we never be guilty of? Well, first, we must never be just bad-tempered people. That's entirely and utterly wrong. To be a bad-tempered person, to be irritable or irascible, is something which is sinful and is condemned everywhere in the Scripture. So it's now you're saying, oh, you know, but I haven't been born like that. You've been born again if you're a Christian, so you mustn't use that argument. It's wrong at any time or on any showing. We don't explain what we are and what we do in terms, I say, of our glands or the balance of the various ductless glands that's to do away with sin. No, no. We find ourselves as we are and we've got to deal with ourselves and we must not be bad-tempered, irritable, irascible people. But we don't stop at that. Here's another thing which we mustn't be. We mustn't be easily provoked. You remember in 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle says that one of the most glorious things about love is that it isn't easily provoked. A man who's easily provoked is a man who's going to fall into sin very frequently. That's the wrong sort of anger, as I'm going to show you. We mustn't be fired. No, rather, to put it positively in terms of the way James uh, describes the wisdom that is from above in the fourth chapter in the 17th verse, he says this wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, peaceable, making peace, uh, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy. We mustn't be easily provoked, my friends. Examine yourself. Let us all examine ourselves. How easily provoked some of us are by all sorts of odd things. Now, here's the test. Uh, are you easily put off or put out by things? doesn't matter what they are. And can it upset you and disturb you and keep your mind on it and prevent you concentrating on something else? I'm speaking to people in a Christian service, you know. People often express to me their irritation at hymns and tunes and things like that. And I get the impression sometimes that they've been so put out and so put off that they can't settle down and listen to the sermon. Easily provoked. That's sinful. We shouldn't be easily provoked. We should rather have this love which enables us to bear all things and easy to be entreated. But let's go further. Here is the wrong sort of anger. Any anger or expression of anger that is excessive, violent, uncontrollable, out of control. We talk about a man being in a towering rage. There's no need to argue about that. That's definitely, utterly sinful. We talk about people seething with anger, shaking with anger. Oh, that is sinning in anger. The very body trembling, the eyes blazing, the, pe the person becoming pale. You've seen it, haven't you? Now, that's altogether wrong and sinful. It's lack of control. The control is just gone. That man's being angry and sinning. He is being angry in a sinful manner. And then the next step is the one that the apostle himself gives us. He says, 
let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Now, the word wrath is not the same word as anger. That is why it's a pity that the Revised Standard Version has put anger in both places. It's a, it's a different word. This is a stronger word. The Apostle has added to it. What does wrath mean? Well, wrath means exasperation. It means anger roused and nursed and nourished until it becomes a settled condition. It means hatred. It means bitterness of spirit. It means vindictiveness. It means that you're determined to get your own back, to seek vengeance, and absolutely determined to get it, that wrath. It's a settled condition of anger. It's become a part and parcel of you. It's a mood, it's a condition which is permanent, and it's bitter and hateful and determined to get its own back. That's wrath. That is wrath as the apostle uses it here. That's not the wrath of God. There's nothing like that in God's wrath. But that is the wrath that the apostle is condemning. That is the wrong sort of anger. Very well then, what does this mean? Well, let's put it like this. The anger that we are to feel as Christians must never be felt by us just because we happen to be that sort of person. That's always wrong. In the same way, our anger must never be personal, but rather against the principle of iniquity and of sin. I do trust that this is plain and clear. My anger must never be the result of my just being this sort of man who's rather peppery, as we say, and pesty, and a bit on edge always, and easily provoked, and ready to explode. That's the thing we've got to deal with. That's the thing that we've got to put off. In other words, the anger about which the apostle is speaking is an anger that should be always aroused against evil and sin. The things that caused the anger and the indignation in our blessed Lord himself. Very well. That brings me to my third big principle. How are we to deal with this sinful anger, this sinful tendency to the wrong type of anger? Here it seems to me as though the apostle argues it here. It's all in terms of his great doctrines. The first, therefore, is this. That a lack or a loss of control of ourselves in any respect is indicative of the old life and the old man. That is the greatest characteristic of that kind of life, isn't it? The apostle has been describing it. They lack control. They're governed, governed by their instincts. Instead of governing, they're governed by them. You remember we worked it out in detail. They're governed by their lust, their passion, their anger, their des desire. All these things are in control of them. And that is why there is so much havoc and trouble in the world. So that any loss of control, whether it's the loss of control of your temper or anything worse, immediately indicates the old life. But, says the apostle, you're no longer in the old life. You no longer are to walk as the other Gentiles walk. Put off the old men. Put on the new men. The new man isn't like that. He is more like his blessed Lord and Master. And what you see there is control and balance and order. Then secondly, 
loss of control or lack of control over ourselves always gives the devil his greatest opportunity. That's why you see the Apostle adds verse 27 to verse 26. Neither give place to the devil. What he means by that is never open the door to the devil. And when you lose your temper, you've opened it wide open. It couldn't be wider. Nothing opens the door more widely than anger. Why? Well, for this good reason. The moment you are controlled by your temper, you are no longer able to reason. You're no longer able to think. You can no longer give a balanced judgment because you're altogether biased on one side and against the other side. In other words, everything that makes men men, the power to reason and to think and to equate and evaluate, it's gone. For the time being, he's like a beast. He's the, the creature of his own passion and of this instinctive kind of power. And, of course, that's just the very situation in which the devil sees his most glorious kind of opportunity. It was, you see, when he persuaded Eve and Adam to be a bit angry against God that he very easily had them in his hands and eating out of his hand, as we say. He just roused this bitterness and enmity against God, that God was against them. And so immediately he could do as he likes and think of it as you know it in life. Is there anything, I wonder, that leads to more trouble than anger? Things said in anger and in a bitter moment, you'd almost cut your tongue off if you could to get them back. But sometimes they leave permanent wounds and scars. What havoc is wrought in the world by anger, and then it leads to the nursing of grievances, and as I say, that desire for revenge and to have our own back, own back, it leads us to despise people and to treat them with contempt. Oh, anger. The moment it has come in, the devil comes in and he'll keep it going and he'll play on us and he'll insinuate thoughts and ideas and implant them and so the whole of life can be ruined just because of anger. Anger is always a cause of confusion. Not only in the life of the individual, but in the life of all those who are involved in this business of living with such an individual. Nothing, I say, so constantly gives the devil an opportunity as loss of control in anger. But let me put it like this in a still more important principle. Vindictiveness or this wrath that he condemns is a denial of the whole Christian gospel. That's the thing the apostle had in his mind. All these great doctrines that he's been giving in the first three chapters. Do you know if you become vindictive, if you get this settled wrath, if you have this desire for vengeance in you, you're denying the whole foundation of the gospel. What is it? It's this. That God forgives us in spite of our being what we are. We are Christians entirely and solely by the grace of God. It's all due to God's mercy. It's in spite of our being what we are, in spite of our being hateful and hating one another, in spite of our being ungrateful, in spite of our being rebellious, in spite of it all, God sent his own Son and he took our sins upon him. He died for us while we were sinners, while we were even enemies. It is all of the free grace of God. As a Christian, you say that you believe then. 
Very well. If you're in this condition of settled wrath against another person, how do you reconcile it with your Christianity? Come, let me ask a more practical question. How can you say the Lord's Prayer every night and morning? Forgive our trespasses as we forgive them the trespass against us. You pray that prayer and you're denying it in, in your life and in your practice. But no, listen to what our Lord said in that parable that he spoke on this subject in the 18th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, that last verse, verse 35. Likewise, he says, shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. You remember the picture, don't you? The servant who'd sinned a terrible sin. He owed his Lord a great sum of money and the Lord was going to put him into prison. But the servant said, have mercy upon me. Give me time and I'll pay you everything. All right, said the Lord. Certainly I will. And then the man was very thankful and very pleased and he went out. He happened to meet a fellow servant who owed him just a hundred pence, a mere triviality. And he said, pay me what you owe me. And the man said, well, I'm sorry, I haven't got... He took him by the throat and said, you've got to pay every farthing. But the man said, have mercy, give me time. No, he said, I won't give you time, you must pay at once. And the last farthing, throw him into prison. The Lord called that man to him and said, you wicked servant. Why didn't you deal with your brother as I dealt with you? Yes, says our Lord, likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every brother, every one his brother their trespasses. If you can't forgive your brother, I tell you, in the name of God, you are not forgiven yourself. Be careful what you're doing, my friend. You can't play fast and loose in God's moral universe. Listen to John putting it in the first epistle. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother... He is a liar. For he that hateth his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? There it is. This is the denial of the very foundation of the gospel. The new men, we've already been told, who is after God created in righteousness and true holiness, he is created in the image of God. So if I claim to be a Christian, I believe I'm renewed in the image of God. And therefore I must do what God has done to me. He's forgiven me in spite of my being what I was. I must forgive another in spite of his or her being what they are. That's the logic. It's all the foundation truths of the gospel. And then I as a Christian claim I have received the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, meekness, faith, and temperance. And therefore not to forgive and to be in a towering rage, losing control, is a denial of the fruit of the Spirit. And then think of this one. We are all together members in the same body of Christ. And we need one another. And we are interdependent upon one another. Therefore you don't talk about throttling your brother, you're throttling a part of yourself and of your own life, and of the body to which you belong. It's a denial of the whole doctrine of the church. And finally, this wrath and seeking of vengeance is a usurpation of God's right of judgment. You remember how the apostle puts that in writing to the Romans again in an unmistakable statement? Listen to this in Romans 12. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, 
which means give place unto the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. No, says the Christian, I know that thing's terribly wrong, but I'm not the judge. I leave it all to God. That's the Christian way. Put off the old men, put on the new men. Let me say just one final word. If that is how we are to deal with this false, sinful anger and wrath, my final question is this. When am I to do so? When am I to deal with it? And we've got one of the most glorious answers in the whole Bible here. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Do it at once. Do it at once. Don't go to bed, don't go to sleep with this in your mind or your heart. Clear it at once. Never go to sleep, my friend, without settling your moral accounts and your spiritual book. Never leave a thing like that on your books. Get rid of it. Erase it. Bring the blood of Christ onto it. Get rid of the thing. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Never go to sleep with a bitter, hateful, angry thought in your heart. Don't let these things have a lodging place. If you've had some terrible provocation during the day, and such things do happen, and you really have felt a righteous anger and indignation, don't let it settle there against the person in particular and become this bitter, malignant hatred. Now, let me tell you what our Lord himself said about this. Listen to him saying it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:24. He's talking about a man going to the temple to take his offering, his gift, to God. But he says, if you find yourself even at the very altar, and suddenly you remember that a brother of yours has something against you, leave there thy gift before the altar, before you've given it, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Now that's very strong, isn't it? Here you are, you're actually in the temple. You've actually advanced to the altar. You're going to put your gift upon the altar. You suddenly remember, leave it there, go away. Settle it with your brother. Put it right first. First be reconciled to thy brother. And then and only then are you fit to come and offer your gift unto God. What's it mean? I sum it up like this. Hate sin always. Hate sin in the sinner Always. But never hate the sinner. Never hate the sinner. Now, this is important. This is really vital. Both sides are absolutely essential. Sin must never be condoned. Sin must never be excused. Sin is always to be condemned. You see, there are people who are sinners, they don't like that. Ah, they say, but where's your principle of grace and of love and of mercy and of compassion? The sinner should never say that. The sinner should feel that he deserves all he's getting and infinitely more. He should never defend himself. He should feel indignation against himself. He should be angry with himself. He should hate himself. The sinner has no right to use that argument. Sin is to rouse a holy anger within us every time and in every form. But the sinner is to be forgiven. 
The sinner is to be loved. The sinner is to be helped to forsake his sin and to rise up. There is this blessed balance of the scripture. Hatred of sin, but never hatred of the sinner. Angry, but never in a sinful way. And above all, I say, make sure always that you never put your head down on that pillow to rest and sleep for the night. With any spirit of bitterness or hatred, or lack of forgiveness in your heart or mind or soul. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. You may have a great struggle with yourself, but stay up until you've settled it. You may have to argue it backwards and forwards. Go on, I say, until you've so realized the love of God in Christ to you, until you so see him bleeding, dying on the cross, that you of everybody might be forgiven. So see it until he's melted your heart broken you down and you're sorry for that one who's offended you and you forgive freely then but not until then get into your bed and put your head down on the pillow and sleep the sleep of the just and the righteous and the holy because you have a right to do so you'll be doing it as the son of God himself did it you will have acted in your life and domain as God himself has acted with respect to you. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.